Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. academic calling Dr. Shelley Jane. Dr. Jane is a physician, post-traumatic stress disorder specialist, and trauma scientist. She brings decades of research and personal experience in the field to her book, The Unspeakable Mind. The book uses case studies of patients Dr. Jane has treated to give readers a broader understanding of PTSD, which is already widely misunderstood and stigmatized despite the over 6 million Americans who suffer from it. We spoke with Dr. Jane about her experiences as a physician and writing the book, as well as what the future of PTSD treatment could look like. Bay Area listeners interested in hearing more from Dr. Jane can attend her events on June 18th in Corte Madera, June 20th in San Jose, June 26th in Palo Alto, June 27th in Berkeley, September 21st and 22nd in Palo Alto, and September 24th in San Francisco. More details about these events can be found on Dr. Jane's Facebook page at facebook.com slash ShellyJaneMD. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Dr. Shelley Jane, author of The Unspeakable Mind, and thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Uh, so you mentioned that you have been working on this book for about a decade. So what was that process like for you? Uh, very slow, laborious. <laughs> um, uh, mostly because obviously I have a day job. I'm, you know, an active clinician. I see patients and make clinical decisions every day. And I'm also a researcher and I teach. I'm on faculty at the Stanford University School of Medicine. So, you know, mo- mostly because it was, um, you know, uh, because of this day job that it took time. But I do feel like, in a way, it was. Um, uh, it needed that time to be right, mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'd be stuck in the writing mm-hmm. um, and, um, you know, we're not sure where to go in terms of how to illustrate a certain point about PTSD. And then, you know, I'd go to my clinic and I'd have an interaction with a patient and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's exactly how I can show, you know, um, what I was trying to do in the book. And so I definitely feel like even though there's conflicts when you have a day job and you're trying to write, but I definitely feel like my my role as a clinician kind of informed the writing in a way too, you know, mm-hmm. by being still on the front lines and doing that care. And then, you know, definitely I'm immersed in a world where I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by people who are on the cutting edge of PTSD science. And so Again, it was really useful sometimes I'd be writing something about the science of PTSD and then somebody would send me some, you know, new research hot off the presses that just happened to land in my inbox and that really helped the book. So I felt like even though 10 years was, it was long, and there, you know, I did a really good impression of a tortoise, you know, <laughs> in that hair and the tortoise parable. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was a really good tortoise, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I, I think it needed it to be right. I, I really think it needed that time just to be, to be right and come out the way I wanted it to come out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Did your vision or concept for the book change at all over the course of writing it? Um, 
I think we had a pretty solid concept down uh, before we started because I spent a lot of time on the book proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what changed, though, um, I feel like through the writing of it, it became apparent to me, and I was definitely nudged by my editor, Hopper, who was amazing. Um, you know, I, I added the, the two sections that I added that weren't in the original. Um, definitely the last section on how I visualize where the future should lie in terms of pushing the science of PTSD forward. Um, and I have a whole chapter in the book on the prevention of PTSD and all the layers of prevention. That was not intended in the original, but in the writing it came through that, of course, this is the work that I do and, and I, should, I should explain that. Mm-hmm. and make a case, case for that in the book. So definitely that. And then believe it or not, for some reason that really escaped me, in the original book, we weren't talking about having a treatment section. And, uh, of course, that does not make sense, but that was not there. And, of course, it was only as I was writing it that I was like, oh, yeah, we need a section on treatment. <laughs> and so that was just one of those blind spots. I think I spend my days so immersed in treatment all the time that I forget that, oh, people want to know about this. So, so yeah, so a couple of new additions, but I think fundamentally the nuts and bolts were reassuringly um, very close to the proposal, so it's not like I was reinventing the book along the way. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, those sections you mentioned you added, um, you know, the future, the preventative, all of that. Um, so you do talk about some advancements in the field that are happening, that you're optimistic for. What are some developments that students who um, are studying psychiatry should know going into their careers? So, yes, yeah, specifically with prevention, we've learned so much about how to prevent PTSD in the past 20 years. And I think the way to approach it is there's many layers of prevention, right? Um, you know, there's, there's the first and most obvious that if we can prevent violence, you know, whether it be sexual violence, family violence, um, you know, prevent mass shootings, things like that, um, any program policies, interventions that reduce those are obviously going to have a favorable impact on PTSD cases. Um, what's new about violence prevention today compared to, say, when I started out in the field, like 20, 25 years ago, is that um, we have a lot more scientific rigor in the way we evaluate violence prevention programs today. Mm-hmm. So we're really much better at finding out what works and why it works, you know, what the secret ingredients are. and. Um, and that's really crucial if you want to scale these programs and if you want to roll them out across different communities. So I think being aware of that and then this period called the golden hours is this window between trauma exposure and the onset of PTSD. And there's a lot of interest from clinicians and scientists in what we can do in that period of the golden hours and how we can use medical interventions to set a pathway toward recovery. Um, and there's a, there's a bunch of studies that I talk about in the book, like using the stress hormone cortisol or a modified exposure therapy protocol. There are a couple of such strategies that we can use in the golden hours. And thinking about that, I think, is really uh, crucial. And then finally, the most practical form of prevention, which I think most students are going to see, is how we can re-engineer PTSD care to make it more accessible, acceptable, and available to sufferers so that it doesn't become a chronic problem. So, you know, any kind of early intervention strategies 
um, you know, understanding those and being aware of those is key. So, for example, how do we leverage technology? You know, how do we use smartphone apps and, and make our patients aware of those? And how do we think about our own practice? Like, integrated care is a big thing. Like, for me, that's what I do. I practice psychiatry in primary care. I literally moved my practice because that's a much better way of improving access to mental health care than sitting in a mental health clinic that's, you know, five miles away from the regular campus. So, again, being aware of early intervention strategies, I think, is key. That Those are the main ways we can think about prevention of PTSD. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned preventative psychiatry, um, and I may be slightly butchering the explanation here, but essentially what it boils down to is it's looking at the risk factors in trauma or violence and sort of intervening to prevent the trauma, the violence from even happening in the first place, which is a very noble goal, would obviously do a lot to eliminate PTSD cases. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there something inherently invasive about that, do you think, from an ethical standpoint? Uh, So the ethical issue that comes up there, and this Mm -hmm. has definitely played out in the literature uh, you know, there was a study done years ago that tried to use the medication propanolol after trauma exposure to prevent um, PTSD from coming on board. And, and there was a massive uh, backlash in the biotics community. Um, and the argument went something like this, that, um, you know, uh, negative experiences, adverse experiences as part and parcel of life and we shouldn't medicalize suffering and this is too much intervention. This is too much inter- intervention from medical science. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to bring up another point related to your question is we do have this issue with precision, right? How do we even identify who is going to benefit from such an intervention? Mm-hmm. And then obviously you get into the realm of profiling of some description or another, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we know that people who are socially disadvantaged are more at risk of PTSD. We know that women are not more at risk. People who have a pre-existing mental health condition, they're at more at risk. It's a lot of people. How do you pinpoint who should be the target of those interventions? So there's definitely some ethical um, arguments to consider. You definitely don't want to get into a one-size-fits-all type strategy. But the angle that I come from in the book is that, you know, PTSD is such a pressing public health concern, and so many people go way too long without getting a diagnosis. So I'm almost like we have the opposite problem. You know, we cannot afford for people to not get interventions that might help. Mm -hmm. We just can't afford to, because the burden of the condition is so large. So I kind of go the opposite end, but I'm very aware of these ethical arguments. And and there's definitely points that need to be incorporated, like ethical dimensions into these approaches. Um, But, you know, they shouldn't impede the progress, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Mm, Definitely, definitely. Um, And you also mention um, phone apps as another potential technological solution to people with PTSD. Um, So if they maybe Mm -hmm. can't come in and see a mental health professional they have an app they could use. Could these kinds of technological solutions replace mental health services? Um, so, you know, that's the fear whenever we talk about technology, people are like, oh my God, we're gonna get replaced, or, or how can you say that an app can do as good a job as a mental health professional? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, they're not gonna replace mental health professionals because there's too much need, and there's no way an app is ever gonna be able to help someone with severe PTSD. I don't think it's happening in the near future. You know, Mm -hmm. what do the apps do though? Like, so example, I I use the example of PTSD coach in my book. 
which was an app that was developed really thoughtfully by very well-trained mental health professionals. So A, the content has been validated. It, it, the content is accurate and it's true and it's helpful. And the idea is this, you know, that almost two-thirds of Americans carry a smartphone in their hand. Mm -hmm. So why not have something available for them that they can use either as while they're waiting to get into treatment, mm -hmm. you know, or as an adjunct to treatment, so they use it in between sessions, or for all those people who are not ready to take that step to seek mental health professional help, because there's so many barriers internally to people have in seeking help. Why not offer them something? Something is better than nothing. And embedded in the app is education, and embedded in the app is a few, you know, simple breathing retraining, relaxation exercises. Something is better than nothing. I just don't think, though, that it's going to replace mental health uh, treatment because uh, because it's very complicated. Every individual is unique. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no way technology has of addressing that uniqueness, um, you know, at this moment in time, certainly. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. So another point in the book you mentioned at one point is you mentioned this theory that PTSD is quote unquote an American slash European problem, which I feel like leads to a larger question. Is mental health care, do you think, a luxury of privilege in a way that we experience in first world countries? Um. Uh, so, so privilege implies like, do we need it? or are we just lucky that we have it? I mean, I definitely think as societies become more affluent, mm -hmm. we start paying attention to dimensions that we didn't have the luxury of paying attention to before, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think of that hierarchy of needs, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, if you're a civilian in a war zone, or if you're struggling to put food on the table or a roof over your family's head, guess what? You know, you don't have the luxury of attending to your psychological wellness or your emotional wellness or your, you know, um, your spiritual wellness. You just don't have that luxury because you are just struggling to survive the day to day. You're in survival mode, mm -hmm. right? Um, that does not mean that you don't have psychological or emotional issues. Mm -hmm. It just means that they're in the back seat, right? They're right. on the back burner. They're just not, they're not a priority. You have to triage to be able to survive in life. Um, I think what happens is whenever a society gets a little bit more affluent and where people have don't have to worry about literally putting food on the table or a roof over their head, then you're not in survival mode anymore. You're in a bit of a different mode and you start to pay attention to those dimensions of your life. And those are not insignificant dimensions. Untreated mental illness causes significant burden, mm -hmm. significant um distress and significantly impaired quality of life so then access to mental health care then of course makes sense and i don't think it should be a luxury i think you know mental health care for all it should be a right but mm -hmm. unfortunately in some parts of the world which have low resources where people are still try, uh, struggling with the day-to-day, -day, it's just not given attention. But, you know, I should say, even that is moving in low-resource countries, in low- and middle-income countries, there is a movement that, you know, we have to pay attention to mental health care. And I would argue the reason you have to pay attention to that, despite whatever circumstances people are living in, is because there's really no health without mental health, mm -hmm. you know? It's all integrated. It's all related. I just had somebody email me today uh, who was listening to a radio show I was on, 
and this this person emailed me saying, you know, she'd been living with the effects of trauma her whole life, and she said, physically, I'm in great shape. I'm elderly, but I'm in great shape. She said, but I just feel like my brain is not cooperating. So, you know, that's an example of how, you know, untreated mental health issues can really burden a life despite having everything on the face of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I don't think it's a privilege. I, I think it should be a right for everybody, but unfortunately, the world we live in, that's still not the case. Mm, it's unfortunate. Uh, so, Dr. Jane, I want to ask more of a personal question for you. Um, so you, in your day-to-day -day job, take on the trauma of others regularly. How do you cope with that? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really important question because vicarious traumatization is a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it contributes to a lot of burnout in people who elect to spend their days and, you know, their lives essentially listening to the trauma of others. Um, for me personally, I think self-care is huge. You know, balance is huge. I, I want to have longevity in this field, you know. I don't want to just burn out and stop seeing patients, you know, after a few years. Uh, I want to have longevity, and for that to exist, I have to take care of myself, you know. My, I have to practice a little bit of what I preach. Um, so, so I definitely am a big proponent of self-care and balance. Um, and, you know, having a very distinct line between work and rest and leisure, you know. Mm -hmm. But personally for me, I think the biggest vehicle for rejuvenation for me has been writing, actually. And I think the timing of this book, you know, I started writing this book around the time that I'd hit 20 years of being a doctor. And I do think I had been carrying around a lot of stuff with me. And I really needed to make sense of that, that, that kind of residue, that clinical residue that I've been carrying for years and years. I really needed to make sense of it. And for me, I make sense of things by writing, by working them through by writing. And definitely, I think by the time I was done with this book, I was able to leave a lot of stuff on the page. And I felt lighter, you know, and I felt that bit more rejuvenated that I could think about, oh, well, maybe I can carry on doing this for another 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. you know? So um, that personally for me has, has been an invaluable tool, the act of writing. Good, good. Uh, so now for students who may be reading this book, what do you hope they gain from these stories? Well, I definitely want to use the power of stories to illuminate exactly what PTSD is, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I definitely think even though PTSD has become part and parcel of our modern vernacular in recent decades, I think it's still sloppily invoked. I think it's still misunderstood. I think it's still misconstrued. So I wanted to use the story to illustrate exactly what it is. I mean, you know, you need to know what you're dealing with to be able to diagnose and treat PTSD. So I felt like the stories were a great vehicle to show what it is in its entirety, how PTSD impacts your brain, how it impacts your body, how it impacts your quality of life, you know. Um, so that was definitely something I wanted um, students to be able to learn from. And also, I feel like any student who's interested in mental health, who's interested in trauma and PTSD, you've got, you have to be aware of all this great science that has come out in the last 20 years. 
And I don't think that was happening. I don't think this amazing body of science that has come out since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, since 9-11, since major disasters like Hurricane Katrina, this massive body of science, I don't think it was filtering through to the front line. And I can say this as a PTSD specialist, it, it wasn't coming through. And, and so I felt like this is a wonderful opportunity to deconstruct this massive body of science. And so I think this new generation of students should be arriving, you know, on the mental health landscape with this knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was, that was, those are some of the, my major goals from writing the book, students. Great, great. Um, so just one more question for you, and this question relates to when you were a student yourself. Um, so since mm-hmm. this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can say any one teacher, Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely feel, you know, when I was a medical student, like 20, 25 years ago, um, there were not that many people who were curious about that mind-body connection, Mm. you know? And so for me, um, the clinicians who happened to be the early psychiatrist mentors who I had and the people who influenced me and maybe decided to become a psychiatrist out of all the specialties that I could have picked to be, um, I chose psychiatry, were the people who were really thoughtful about the mind-body connection, who really paid attention to patient stories, who really paid attention to the doctor-patient relationship, you know? Because mm-hmm. to me, they emphasized the art form in medicine. And to me, that was the thing that was universal and would be eternally fascinating to me. So I definitely think my early psychiatrist mentors, I was very fortunate that I had really strong psychiatrists as early mentors, and they really set me up for a career of being very curious and fascinated and very grateful to do the work that I do. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Dr. Jane, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much, Michael. It's my pleasure. Not a problem. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.